0: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Today, we will continue a long-running series that we call Mob Mentality. It's been a little bit since we covered one of these, so we'll get to it real soon. But first, head on over to our website at ohiomysteries.com. There is plenty of content that goes along with each and every one of our podcasts that is laid out super easy for you to see pictures and news articles. If you haven't done that yet, you are in for a fantastic treat. Also, you will find links to our PayPal and Patreon if you feel like helping us out. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is a storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. Like individual people, individual communities can be quite complex and always evolving. You can't always take a snapshot in time and think it offers an adequate description. Take the city of Marion, the seat of Marion County in central Ohio. If you could go back in time and land there and say, the mid-1800s, you would find it was a stop on the Underground Railroad where residents helped runaway slaves on their way to freedom in Canada. Ohio had passed some of the earliest restrictions on slavery in the Union, and the abolitionist movement flourished. The same was true in Marion. In 1838, for example, there was a case of a runaway slave being arrested then fought over by a number of Virginians who wanted to claim him for their own. Local Marionites spirited him away and got him to safety. But if you took that same time machine back to 1919, you would see a different kind of Marion, a fast-growing industrial hub that attracted migrants from the South leading to tensions that would force the eviction of almost every black resident from the city. Marion became what was known as a sundown town, where a mix of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, and violence worked together to make sure Marion's population remained almost completely white. Of course, times changed yet again, Today, one in every ten residents of Marion is African-American. And in 2020, amidst intense racial unrest around the country, Marion Mayor Scott Schertzer and the City Council unanimously passed a resolution vowing to promote racial equality and justice for its African-American residents. Tonight, our story delves into the Marion of 1919. That's when the still unsolved murder of a white woman led to the city's racial cleansing. Marion was having growing pains back then. Its population had skyrocketed from 18,000 people in 1910 to 29,000 less than a decade later. A lot of the new folks were laborers and railroad workers and tensions simmered as long-time Marionites feared they were losing their small town. The breaking point began on January the 29th, 1919, when the lifeless body of Rose Bell Scranton was found at the edge of a coal heap near the Erie Railroad Roundhouse. Rose was 27 years old, and lived at 265 Cass Avenue with her husband, Clyde, an inspector for the railroad. The couple had three daughters, four-year-old Ruth, two-year-old Frances, and Rita May, just seven months old. For many years, Rose was the chief operator at the Marion County Telephone Company's Exchange, and she was known to many people but motherhood kept her busy, and her outside activities these days was mostly being secretary for the National Protective League, a lodge known for anti-immigration activities in a city that had grown uncomfortable with the influx of not just blacks, but Eastern European laborers. On Wednesday, January the 29th, Rose started her day with an hour-long train trip to Bucyrus. A lodge sister, Mary Peterman, had died, and it was Rose's job to confirm the death for a life insurance policy. She lingered in Bucyrus, meeting with friends and having dinner. Then she called home. Since the hour was after sunset, She had hoped her husband could meet her at the corner of Center and David Streets upon her arrival. But Mr. Scranton was attending a work meeting, and a neighbor, Mrs. Lessig, was watching their children. So Rose asked Mrs. Lessig to turn on a porch light. She'd take the 7 p.m. train, then walk home from the train depot alone. Mr. Scranton made it home before his wife, and he was immediately concerned. He set out to search for her, making several trips up and down the street. Just after 11 p.m., he learned a body had been found, and he hurried to the location. Jane Steele, an inspector at the roundhouse, and Elmer Patton, a fellow workman, had found Rose. She was dead her body still warm. Investigators would determine she had first been attacked in a vacant lot just 70 feet from her house. Her hat, muff, handkerchief, comb, and a button off her coat were found there. Mrs. Lessig recalled hearing a scream shortly before 9 o'clock. She didn't think much of it. Now she was convinced she had been hearing Rose be killed. From where Rose was first attacked, she was taken about a half mile away, across a cornfield, under a fence, and left in a stubble field. She was dragged at least part of that way, given the burrs and dirt on her long brown coat and the scratches on her knees. A local physician filling in for the county's absent coroner first ruled she must have died of heart shock Caused by fright, there were no other obvious wounds on her. Later, it was determined she had been struck on the head, likely with a sandbag, which caused a fatal blood clot on her brain. Authorities guessed the motive was robbery. Her money was missing, as were her diamond ring, a signet ring, and her wristwatch. There were several thoughts as to who might be responsible, A woman had been accosted by a tall white man on North Prospect Street earlier that very day. He had attempted to rob her, though she twisted from his grasp and got away. Another resident also reported having been held up for $30 on Kenton Avenue that afternoon. At one point, even Rose's husband was arrested, though he was quickly absolved there was never an indication the police ever looked at people who might have had a grudge against Rose for her anti-immigrant activities. Instead, police narrowed their focus to just one group, black railroad workers. There was an extensive amount of grease on Rose's body, which led them to suspect the killer worked for the railroad. And even though there were white railroad workers they concentrated on a camp of southern laborers that had been brought in by the Erie. At least a dozen black men were arrested, but let go, in turn, when their alibis or lack of evidence cleared them. Now railroad workers responded to this by making it clear how much they were appalled by the murder. They threatened to roast the killer alive, and they kept a fire burning in an engine, just in case they caught him before the police. Throughout all of this, the Marion Star, a newspaper owned by U.S. Senator Warren G. Harding, pleaded with citizens to remain calm and let the justice system do its work. Harding, by the way, would campaign for president from the front porch of his house the following year and move into the White House in 1921. Editorials in his paper, which had black employees, by the way, reminded its readers that Marion was changing and growing and should expect the kinds of problems bigger cities faced and that they were past the days when vigilantes would lynch suspects and risk killing an innocent man. And, truth be told, Marion was fairly calm and seemed to be willing to allow the police to do their work. But police always feared that a mob was inevitable if they didn't show progress on the case. And that fear became reality four days after Rose's murder when there was a second attack.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
1: 50-year-old Margaret Christian accused a black man, George Washington Warner, of attacking her in her yard at Fountain Street and Kenton Avenue. She was returning home from caring for a sick neighbor and had taken just a couple of steps into her yard when she was jumped. Her daughter and a neighbor responded to her screams, and the assailant fled. Two other neighbors, William Van Houten and Caleb Ballinger, armed with guns, went out that night, and they apprehended a man they thought responsible. They turned him over to police. Margaret Christian identified the 22-year-old Warner as her assailant. At first, he denied it, but police were also eyeing him for that murder of Rose Scranton. He was a railroad laborer, and he fit their profile. As the evening wore on, townspeople began to assemble outside the Marion Police Station, demanding action. Police quickly whisked Warner out of town for his own protection. They took him to the jail at Mount Gilead in Morrow County. Now the mob grew to about 300 people, and when they became convinced Warner was no longer in Marion, they took out their anger on local black families. They went to the west side and burned down a saloon owned by James Hagen because it was known to cater to black patrons. They went into black neighborhoods and terrorized them, breaking windows of houses where families had barricaded themselves in. The next morning, on February the 3rd, handwritten warnings were posted all over town telling black residents to get out of the city by 6 p.m. Black property owners went to the city hall and implored the mayor to intervene. They were told the mob probably didn't mean law-abiding black people, probably just those railroad camps. But the mob was still wreaking havoc. A group within the mob, a dozen military veterans, some of them dressed in their old uniforms, heard Warner had been transferred to Mount Gilead, and they hurried to the jail there. When the men arrived and insisted the Morrow County Sheriff let them in, Sheriff Van Atta said, I am not exactly in the habit of showing visitors through the jail at this time of night. If you'll come back in a little while when I get my clothes on, I'll let you in. The men backed off for a time, and that gave just enough time for the sheriff to call a dozen prominent men in Mount Gilead, deputize them over the phone, and ask them to hurry to the jail. It also gave him time to get Warner away, and they took him to the Mansfield Reformatory. Now those new deputies were in position when the mob members returned, and they promptly arrested them all. The men were later fined for their behavior. Back in Marion, the placards all around town ordering black residents to leave did its work. The Marion Star reported that overnight, some 200 black families fled for their lives, leaving behind their property and their possessions. Marion had become an all-white community. Prosecutors wanted the Margaret Christian case put behind them quickly, so Warner was brought back to a Marion courtroom to stand trial for that attempted robbery. He ended up pleading guilty. He was immediately sentenced to 15 years and taken back to Mansfield. But as to the murder of Rose Scranton, he provided the prosecutor with the names of two men who could vouch that he was in galleon the night Rose was killed, and his alibi held up. Throughout this entire affair, Marion Mayer A.J. Sauter Seemed to minimize the seriousness of what was happening in his town. He referred to the eviction as a request for black families to leave. Well, after the exodus, the mob disbanded and order was restored. The Erie Railroad dismissed about a hundred black employees of the roundhouse. Many of the newly employed were too frightened to even return and collect their final paycheck. Marion wasn't the only city dealing with racial unrest that year. 1919 was the year of Red Summer, when more than three dozen cities had racial riots from late winter into early autumn. Marion kept black families from moving back into town for many years. It became a sundown town. That term, by the way, was shorthand for don't let the sun go down on you while you're here. According to a book by James Lowing called Sundown Towns, Ohio had half a dozen of these kinds of communities over the years. I thought I'd share the list with you. In addition to Marion, Fairborn in southwest Ohio's Greene County in modern days, Fairborn is home to many Blacks, including a great deal of students from nearby Central State, a historically Black university. But in the mid-1960s, Blacks were prohibited from living there. Green Hills, a village in Hamilton County, in the 1930s, that village restricted minorities from purchasing homes in the village. Reading, Ohio another suburb of Cincinnati, prohibited blacks from living there or being within city limits after dark. Census records show no blacks lived in Redding from 1860 to 1960, an entire century. Waverly, in south-central Ohio's Pike County, was another sundown town as early as the 19th century. The town had no residents of color, And the Ku Klux Klan had a large presence there. And there's this surprising example from Northeast Ohio. Niles in Trumbull County and the birthplace of America's 25th president, William McKinley. They maintained a sign near the Erie Depot in the early 20th century, telling people of color not to let the sun set on their heads while they were in town.
0: And now a word from our friends and fellow podcasters over at Forgotten News Podcast, who have been kind enough to share several episode suggestions with us, like tonight's story. Wait a minute. Have you heard the strange and unusual stories of the Forgotten News Podcast? Hello, everyone. This is Jim. This is Kit Can. We host the Forgotten News Podcast.
2: On our show, we tell true stories from history,
1: but not the stories you learned in school.
0: We tell stories that are obscure.
2: Mysterious. Weird. Wild.
0: For example...
2: The teenage girl who committed the last stagecoach robbery in the United States in 1899... The really dumb gang of crooks who unintentionally kidnapped the lieutenant governor of Idaho in 1929.
1: The group of old ladies, in 1893, who would secretly go out at midnight to castrate cats and then, um, speed up their journey to heaven.
2: The farmer who vanished into thin air in front of witnesses as he simply walked across his empty dirt yard in 1889.
1: So, on any given episode... Our stories might be serious, silly, or
2: sad.
0: But they will always be true.
2: So, now you know pretty much everything about what to
1: expect if you listen to the Forgotten News Podcast.
0: We think you'll like it, so please give us a try.
1: We can hardly wait to have you Be part of our audience.
2: Bye. And remember, history is no mystery.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.